Amen. You please be seated. Our sermon text this morning is from Hebrews chapter 7, verse 11 through 28. It's on page 11 of your bulletin, or you may open up a Bible and follow along as well. And you could even, if you really wanted, open up a Bible app on your phone. But you better put the phone away afterwards, okay? So. But you can do that, as long as it's a scripture and you're reading it or following along. That's the goal. So Hebrews chapter 7, verse 11 through 28, hear the word of the Lord. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This, this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of legal requirements concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. For it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a high priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sin and those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to your word with humility. It teaches us. It instructs us. It is inerrant. It is infallible. And so, Father, on this morning, this Resurrection Sunday especially, I pray that you would allow me to speak truth, that anything false would fall away, and that which is from you would be remembered. I pray that you would work in such a way by your Spirit that our hearts and minds would clearly see Jesus. And not that we would gain knowledge, but we would gain a love for you. We would gain an obedience. We'd gain, we'd gain a life it is for your glory and for your kingdom. We pray you do this work in our hearts now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Priests don't play a big part in our society now. You know, when you think of a priest, you probably picture an older white man in a robe, a white robe maybe, with a funny hat on. And in case you didn't know that, I'm not a priest, by the way. Um, I know I'm wearing a, a robe and maybe it's a little funny and not something we would wear out in town. But it's a Geneva gown. It's a preaching gown. It's different. We could talk about it sometime, and there's an interesting history behind it. 
But priests in general are kind of outside the mainstream of society in modern America. It's probably not a job that your average high school guidance counselor is kind of pushing for high school students to pursue. And if I pressed you really hard, you probably would have a difficult time writing out a job description of a priest. You know, in this section of Hebrews, interestingly enough, may seem a bit unrelatable to us because it's all about priests. In fact, a lot of the book of Hebrews is about different types of priests, how one is better than the other and what that means for, for us. One of the things that's interesting about this, though, is Hebrews says in chapter 5, verse 11, about priests, that this stuff is, quote, hard to explain. So, yes, I chose a scripture passage that scripture says is hard to explain for our Easter morning text. I'm either really brave or really dumb. We'll find out. But this stuff is hard to explain, and it's hard to understand. I also have faith in you that you can do this, and you can understand it. Truth be told, though, most of us probably don't spend a lot of time thinking about priests or even how Jesus is a priest. It's not really something that comes into our mind. Last week on Palm Sunday, we focused together in our, in our uh, look at the triumphal entry on how Jesus, as the king of peace, arrived in Jerusalem on a donkey as he approached the hour of his death, the hour that he had come to the earth and done his ministry for. And this week, this afternoon, right now on Resurrection, Resurrection Sunday, our attention now turns to how Jesus, in light of the resurrection, is a priest. And while the priesthood may seem like an abstract, impractical theological construct, it's really essential in understanding this question. How can we stand before a holy God? How can we have fellowship with him? He is so far above us, so different from us, and so perfect. It's really the question of all of creation. It's the question of all humanity. How do we stand before a holy God? A priest is an answer to that question. It's an attempt to find a way for us to be right before God. A priest is an office. It's a position designed to be a mediator between God on one hand and man on the other to make things right. A priest is supposed to help us with all the mess of our lives and the stains of the world on us. Help us to draw near to God, a God who has no shadow of any imperfection at all. He's perfect. He's holy, holy, holy. Or as in the book of Isaiah says, holy, 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 nine times, just in case we don't quite get it. The book of Hebrews, which is our selection of our text comes from, the author is making the case for the superiority of Jesus as a high priest over the Old Testament priesthood. It's saying Jesus is the way to have peace with God. It's the way to have a clean conscience and to be forgiven. Simply put, the priesthood of Christ is the only way people can be right with God. It's superior to the Old Testament way. I was debating what the title of the sermon, and I had to go with the power of an indestructible life, and we'll get to that in a minute. But an alternative title I really, really like is this. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. It's just simple and it works. And what we're going to do is just look at three ways this morning that Jesus is better. Three ways that he is better. And the first one is this. He is perfect. And they're all going to be P's. Why? I don't know. Because there, there's going to be P's. P words. It's going to work. You're going to remember it. I have, I have faith in you. Jesus is perfect. We see this in verse 11 through 22, really the whole entire section of our scripture 
uh, uh, selection this morning is making the case that Jesus is perfect. But specifically in verse 11 through 22, the case is being made that the old priesthood and law are imperfect and they don't work to make us right with God. In fact, verse 11 tells us that perfection was not attainable through the Levitical priesthood. The Old Testament law and this Levitical priesthood, they're kind of like two sides of the same coin. They go together. You can't have one without the other. The law had a priesthood that went with it. And this law of the Old Testament was with the priesthood was never a way that was going to achieve perfection. It only achieved frustration. In fact, the Apostle Paul in Galatians 3.24, he says the same thing. He says the law was our guardian until Christ came. It watched over us. It was a guide, but it was never meant to provide anything for us but frustration. I wonder if you've ever tried to draw a straight line. Like, you know, anybody who's an artist, just freehand a straight line. I'm always impressed by people who can draw. And I imagine there's some of you guys who could do it really well. I'd love to see your artwork. Um, But I don't have that ability. I've got a few other skills. I'm a little bit musical, a couple other things I can do all right. But I'm not an artist at all. I'm more what you would call a stick figure specialist. Maybe you've seen people like me. Um, I'm an expert in paint by number, okay? I'm really good at that. But purely drawing, no. I got none of that skill, and I'm, I'm way impressed by those of you who can. But one of the things that's the most difficult to do, from what I understand, in art is to draw a straight line, freehand. And like I said, I'm sure there's a few who could do it well. But for us mere mortals it's an impossible task. If I tried to draw a straight line, it would just look terrible. You'd have to stand back 10 feet for it to look, well, okay, 20 feet for it to look good, right? From that distance, the imperfections would fade away. But we know, and I know, that it would not be mathematically perfectly straight. Well, the law of God is a lot like a perfectly straight ruler or a straight edge, you know, something an engineer or an architect would use. And, and you're trying to draw a straight line. And no, you can't use this ruler. Sorry, you're not allowed to use it. But you can use it to reveal how bad you are at drawing a straight line. You can compare, right? It shows us what a true straight line looks like, but it doesn't help you make your own. You can try and imitate it. You can try and copy it. But you, on your own, will never make a mathematically perfect straight line. That's the law. That's what the Old Testament law is like a revealer of our shortcomings, and a sign that points to the real thing. Well, that's what the author is saying here, the priesthood associated with that law is like. It's imperfect, and it has a limited use. This is why in verse 18 it says this, the former commandments are weak and useless because they can't make anything perfect. They can't help us truly stand before a holy God. Now, don't get me wrong. This is not to say the law is bad or it was a mistake. The law was from God. It was his, his creation, his idea. Um, but the law, by the way, I'm speaking of specifically is the Old Testament sacrificial laws, the ceremonial laws. The moral law of God, which is summarized in the Ten Commandments, you still have to follow that, by the way. You don't get off the hook on that one. You still have to follow that. But all of the law had value, but the value was not to make us right. Their value was to point us in the right direction. Jesus fulfilled these, and he replaced them. Let me give you another metaphor just, just to help you understand how this works. And I don't want to oversimplify things, but sometimes these little you know, pictures just kind of help, for me at least, kind of have it all click in place. I wonder if you've ever you know, bought a picture frame. You go to Target, 
and you want to have a new, you know, a new frame for a picture you have printed off. And so you buy this, this picture frame, a little, you know, 8 by 10 or whatever, and there's already a picture in it of a family. It's one of those stock images of this cheesy family going, you know, they're smiling, and maybe there's a barcode on there still, but it's, it's made on that really flimsy paper, and it's certainly not your family. Well, when you go home in this picture frame you just bought, and you put it on the mantle, um, do you leave that stock image in the frame? I hope not, by the way. Those of you who do, come and see me afterwards. But no, of course not, right? You take that frame out. You throw it away, and you put in a picture of your own family, your own dog, whatever you want to put in there. You put in a real picture. You put in a real thing. See, the Old Testament law is kind of like a stock image in a frame you buy at the store. It shows us what should go in the frame. It hints at the real thing. It has its use in the store as an advertisement, but it was never meant to be permanent because it can't do and it isn't the real thing. This is why verse 12 says that with the change of the law, there's a change of the priesthood. You get one side of that coin out the window, both sides go with it. Jesus did not abolish the law, he fulfilled it. He's the real image. He kept the law perfectly so that you and I could be free from it. So instead of a priest from the tribe of Levi with the accompanying Old Testament laws from Moses, we get an alternative a better way, a new law, and a new priest. We get one after the order of Melchizedek. Now, we already read Psalm 110 this morning that hinted at this, but this Melchizedek is a mysterious figure in the Old Testament. In fact, his name only appears twice in the entire Old Testament. Believe it or not, it appears more in the New Testament than the Old Testament. It appears in Genesis 14 and Psalm 110. And in, in Genesis 14, he just kind of appears out of nowhere. This man named Melchizedek. He comes to Abraham, who was called Abram at the time, and, and he's announced as the king of Salem, the king of peace. So he's a king, but he's also a priest, both in one. We've never seen that before ever since then. And he appears with no mother, no father, no genealogy, n- seemingly no beginning of days, and it never tells us the end of his days. We don't know what happened to him. He's such a great figure, so, so, such importance and high seniority that Abraham, the father of our faith, pays him respect and gives him a one-tenth of all that he owns. He gets a tithe. And not only that, but Melchizedek blesses Abraham, the superior blessing the inferior. So when Abraham meets him, he knows this guy, he's a rank above me. Jesus, Hebrews tells us here, Jesus is a priest in this order. He is a priest like this man, Melchizedek. This order is not one of physical lineage or heredity. It's a lineage based on personal quality. And that's the second way that Jesus is better. He is permanent. Permanent. So we got perfect, and now we have permanent. This is found in verse 16 and 17, and also 23 and 24. In the Old Testament, priests had the job based on lineage. Uh, as it says in verse 16, concerning bodily descent. Now, the Greek word for bodily descent, it, it literally means flesh or pertaining to the flesh, like your stuff you're made out of. Like you were a priest if you were made out of the same flesh as the guy before you, so you had to be related to them, same family, same DNA. But Jesus isn't from Levi, the tribe of priests. He's from Judah. He has no physical lineage to claim a priesthood. And, and just like we saw last week, Jesus, as a king, establishes a spiritual kingdom and rejected the earthly one 
so too his priesthood is not based on flesh. It's not earthly. It's heavenly. It's spiritual. It's not carnal. It's above. And Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek based on his spiritual, personal qualities. He became a priest not by proving his family heritage or genealogy, but by demonstrating his power through the indestructibility of his life. And you know when he did that? He did that at the resurrection. He demonstrated the power of his indestructibility. Easter Sunday is the first day of a new priesthood. We could call this Priesthood Sunday. Nobody ever has called it that, and nobody will, but we could. We could call this Priesthood Sunday. It's the first day of a priesthood that is perfect, it is permanent, and is effective at making us right with God. You know, the word in the original language for indestructible, it's only found ever in one place in the entire Bible, and it's right here. It's never used by anybody else. It's a very unique word. And it, it literally means incapable of being dissolved or something that cannot be like broken apart into little pieces. Uh, you can't get rid of this life. It is indestructible, full stop. You know, you can take dirt, mix it in a cup and dissolve it. You can, you can burn things, you can destroy everything we know around us. You can break apart or destroy, but not Jesus, not his life. It's indestructible. We don't have a category in our brains for something like this. There is not one thing in your life that you have ever experienced or seen that is indestructible. Jesus can't be broken. He can't be dissolved, destroyed, or stopped. His life, just like his kingdom and just like his priesthood, is eternal, perpetual, and powerful. Well, you might be wondering then, why did he die? It's a valid question. If he's unstoppable... Why did he die? He chose to. He chose to die. He chose to go to the cross for our sins. It was the great double swap. We might call it imputation. He who had no sin, that is Jesus, became sin for us. He took our sin, said, I'll take that. And he went to the cross and he died the death that we should have died. But it doesn't stop there. He gives us his righteousness. He takes the perfect, righteous life and obedience that he has lived from day one till the day he died, and he gives it to us through faith. Through faith that is credited to our account, and when the Father in heaven looks at those who have faith in Jesus, he doesn't see our sin or our rebellion or mistakes. He sees the very righteousness of Jesus. That's the good news. That's the gospel. You see, death had no claim on Jesus because he had no sin of his own. Not one. Not one hint of sin. You may not know this, but death only has authority where there is sin. And Jesus was and Jesus is sinless. No jurisdiction. Death had none on Jesus and had no claim on his life. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty five. Even though Jesus died, he was never ruled by death. His death was a willful choice, an act of obedience and love, and when his redeeming work was done by his divine power, he took his life back up, never to die again. So why did he die? 
He died because he wanted to. That's maybe a strange way to put it. He died for love. He died for obedience. He died for the Father's will. He died for you. He died for me. And after he died willfully, he said, my life, it's mine again. It's indestructible. The only way it could ever be taken from me is if I was willing to let it go. This is power like we can't imagine. I love how Acts 2.24 puts it. It has this little phrase, and it says, it is not possible for death to keep its grip on Jesus. Acts 2.24. It's the image, again, I love the picture. It's the image of death just trying to like grab him, you know, and hold him down. Literally using the word grip. And death is just can't do it. It's trying to hold Jesus down, and Jesus just bursts forth. I wonder if you've ever, ever played tug-of-war with a dog. You know, like you get one of those like rope toys or little chew toys, and you're kind of going back and forth. And I don't, mean, I don't mean like a little chihuahua, by the way. I mean like a real dog, like, like a Belgian Malinois or something like that, like a dog that is going to win in a fight. And if that dog wants that toy, if you're truly wrestling with a real dog, it's just going to rip it out of your grip. Like, if it wants that rope toy, if you got a you know, German Shepherd or some real dog, you lost. It's gone. The dog wins. Why? Because it's stronger than you. It's more powerful than you. And it likes the game, so it plays with you, but truly, if it really wanted it, it's, it's gone. That's the image I get from Acts 2.24. Death is trying to hold on to Jesus, trying to keep a grip on him, trying to keep power over him, but doesn't have a chance. By his divine power, which is so great and vast, Death couldn't keep keep a grip on Jesus. You know, the former priests in the Old Testament system were many in number. There were actually 83 high priests from from Aaron, the first priest, until the fall of the second temple in 70 AD when uh, Rome came and sacked Jerusalem and destroyed it, and they destroyed the temple. 83 priests. So in the time from when God had the idea of a priest and gave the law to the people to win, by God's judgment, the temple was destroyed. There were 83 men who filled that office. And there were 83 because they kept dying. They were prevented by death from continuing in office. Death held them. It gripped them. It had power over them. They had their own sins. And death had jurisdiction over them. Again, not to be flippant here, but it's hard to keep your job when you're dead. And that's precisely what the Bible is saying. The old priests aren't as good as Jesus because they don't stick around. Verse 24 of Hebrews 7. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Permanently is what we have in Jesus. In fact, the he in the original language here is it's emphatic. It's like emphasized. He's saying this. He, Jesus, this one, this man. But this man, this Jesus, his priesthood is unchangeable, untransferable, and permanent. Not only is the office permanent, but so too is the sacrifice that he offered in that office. Take a look at verse 27. He says, it says this, He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily. You know, in the Old Testament, they had to keep repeating these sacrifices every day. You know, every year they had um, their yearly sacrifices. And the sacrifices associated with various feasts, they had to be repeated, a Thanksgiving offering, a grain offering, the sin offering, you know, in Leviticus, the first seven chapters are the seven different types of offerings for various situations and times. And they had to keep doing that because, well, they, they weren't permanent. You know, they just they didn't truly work. They were that picture that pointed to the real deal. But Jesus has no sin of his own. 
He only offered one sacrifice. And then he sat down at the right hand of the Father, and he was done. He gave a sacrifice of his own life as a ransom for sinners. He gave a single offering because it was permanent and it was perfect. His sacrifice worked. It fulfilled the responsibilities of the Old Testament priesthood. And through his endless life, the life he is living right now, he assumes the priesthood in the order of Melchizedek. In verse 12, uh, is quoting from Psalm 110, which again, we did read together already this morning. Verse 12 shows us further that it is God by an oath sworn that made Jesus a permanent priest. God swore an oath. It was his idea to make this happen. It was his system that was replaced, and it's his idea and his system that now replaces it with something better. God's idea from beginning to end. You know, a few chapters later on in the book of Hebrews, we read this in chapter 10, that Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. By a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Jesus offered a single permanent offering by a single perfect permanent priest. It's perfect. It's better. It's permanent. And because his life is permanent, he will never leave his post. Jesus never gets tired. He never gets old. He never becomes dated. He will never become culturally out of touch with those he represents to the Father. He will never become socially irrelevant. He will never be an old man that should have retired a long time ago. No, Jesus doesn't change. Once again, we don't have a category in our brain for somebody like this. People change. Jesus is not. We expect change. We change. Um, You know, when I was a kid, I hated tomatoes, but now I like them. No one's surprised. It doesn't even matter. I can't believe I even used that as an illustration. Because it's so dumb because we know people change. You're going to be different in a month than you are right now. But Jesus isn't like that. His being is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His capability is the same now as it was then and as it will be forever. His preferences are the same. His likes, his dislikes, his attributes. The essence of his being does not change, and it never will. This is Jesus. Jesus ever stands for us. He will never leave his post. He will never be out of position. He is always on watch, always making intercession, always alert, always present. And that brings us to the third and final way Jesus is better. Jesus is present. So he's perfect, he's permanent, and he's present. We see this specifically in verse 25 through 28, but again, it's throughout the entire section. Now, you, if you don't know, I'm active duty military. Some of you know that. Um, and one of the things that is interesting about the military you may not know is that we actually have our own uh, special laws we have to follow called the UCMJ, the Uniform Code of Military Justice. It's like we're subject to all the laws everybody else is, plus like a bunch of extra ones just for fun, right? Um, and do you know what one of the worst crimes you can commit in the military is against this military law, this UCMJ? Um, it's actually falling asleep or leaving your post if you're on watch. If you're tasked to watch an area, to be a sentry, a guard, a lookout, something along those lines, but instead you leave, you're like, I'm out of here, you know, or you fall asleep, or maybe you get drunk or something along those lines, it's literally one of the worst crimes you can commit. During peacetime, the punishment can be up to a year in prison. 
Like, it's a serious offense. But during wartime, the punishment can be death. Like, if you leave your post during war, it's that big of a deal. And the reason is the stakes are high. If you leave your post, lives can be lost, armies can be defeated, because you left when you were supposed to do something. Jesus never leaves his post. He is present forever. Or as verse 24 says, he continues forever. He will never leave his post. But he's also, he's, he's, he's not in some, you know, mystical way present, floating around in the ether. No, Jesus has a body, and he has a single position in space and time. Do you know where Jesus is right now? We actually read it together. We proclaimed it. Yeah, he's, he's at the right hand of the Father right now. He's actually there. Now, again, where is, it's hard to figure out where that is, and that's something we could you know, have a conversation about, maybe a great Sunday school lesson. But he is right now at the side of the Father, on duty as a priest. Romans 8.34 says that Jesus is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. He's not only before God, he's doing something. It's called interceding. He's pleading for his people, those he represents to the Father. 1 John 2.1 says that he is our advocate with the Father. In Hebrews 7.25, which is part of our text, we learn that Jesus always lives to intercede for us. That's what he lives for. He's alive right now. It is the essence of who he is, his office, and what he is about to intercede for you without ceasing for a single moment in time. He pleads for us, standing between God and man. He constantly intercedes for those who come to God in prayer. If ever a prayer is answered, it's because Jesus is present and on duty. It's not because of you. It's because Jesus is there. If ever God hears the cry of a sinner, it's because Jesus is at the right hand of the Father saying, yes, on the merit of my indestructible life, yeah, that one's mine. That one's mine. He is perfectly, permanently present to help those who look to him. He is truly God, and he is truly man. You know, in, in that role as, an, as, a, as a mediator, as an intercessor, we really have to be careful not to think of Jesus like an earthly mediator. Maybe you've seen those before in business or something along those lines. But Jesus is not like a lawyer when you go to mediation or a counselor that's like helping you resolve a conflict or an argument with your spouse. He is in a completely unique position. Uh, he doesn't just represent both parties. He truly is both parties. Like this should blow your brain. Again, don't have a category for it. He is a mediator and a go-between representing both parties, and is both parties. He is fully God, and he is fully man, 100% both. It's not jumbled in any way, shape, or form. I like how the scholar F.F. Uh, F. Bruce puts it. He says this, Jesus is the unique mediator between God and man and mankind because he combines Godhead and manhood perfectly in his own person. In him, God draws near to men and women, and in him, men and women may draw near to God with assurance of constant and immediate access. That's amazing. Jesus not only represents us permanently before the Father, he is us. He is us. So, what does all this mean? What does it mean? I think my attention goes to verse 25. There's a lot of things I threw at the wall. A lot of things about the priesthood. 
We've seen that Jesus is perfect. He's permanent and he's present. But all these things result in one thing, which is found in verse 25. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Completely, totally forever. The hardest question in the universe, how can we stand before a holy God? It's through Jesus. He is the one that can save to the uttermost if we draw near to God through him in faith. It's not through the Old Testament priests. It's not even through our own good works. Sorry, your works aren't going to do it. It's not our attempts to keep the law. It's not anything that we can do. It is by faith alone, through Christ alone. The resurrected king of peace, the priest after the order of Melchizedek, the one who has the power of an indestructible life, it is through this Jesus alone. So brothers and sisters, the good news of the resurrection is this. We have a high priest of a new and better order, one that is permanent, perfect, and present. You and I can have confidence in our salvation that we can stand before God and have fellowship with him because we stand in the power of the resurrected life of Christ, our indestructible high priest. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we rejoice. We rejoice in Jesus. We rejoice in the resurrection. We rejoice that you have given us a prophet and priest and king, one who is perfect, permanent, and present, one who saves to the uttermost all who call upon him. Father, Help us to trust this Jesus. Help us to abandon our own good works, our own attempts to be justified before you in other ways and cling tightly to our Savior Jesus. Lord, help us. We thank you for this word. We thank you for this, this moment, this, this time this afternoon to come together as your people and rejoice, rejoice in the resurrection and in our risen King. Father, strengthen our hearts. May this word go deep into our, our hearts and produce the fruit of faith and repentance in our lives for you and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.